Hey, this is Candace Pringle, lead pastor of FE Church, and this is our podcast. All right. Taking ground number five. How awesome has the series been so far? And how awesome was Jason Ball, Pastor Jason from Freedom Life last week? So kind of him to come out and minister to us in that way. This series, and we went through a long spiritual warfare series, right? Suit Up was so good. And this series has been sort of a companion to that. It's been how to take ground, spiritually speaking, in a spiritual warfare sense. As a church, as a body of Christ, how do we take ground spiritually? And so, so far, you know, we're five weeks in. I just want to give you a little review, okay? So far, we have covered how to behave as the church, right? We have to be a church that is attractive, that people want to come be a part of. There's lots of toxic churches out there, just to be honest. There's lots of, I mean, we're humans, so every church has a bit of unhealth because there's humans in it, right? But when the church is mostly healthy, when it's thriving, when it's good, it's attractive. People want to be a part of that. And so that was the first week. We also covered how to pray like the church should pray, right? We pray and we preach. That is how we take ground spiritually. And we covered how to love people like Jesus, how to love people like Jesus. So I want to give you a little bit of a heads up with where we're going with this series over the next few weeks. Uh, Today we are again covering how to love people like Jesus, how to move them through the stages of faith, uh, evangelism, really. Next week, we're going to talk about the helper, the Holy Spirit. Uh, It's going to be a powerful weekend. I'll talk a little bit more about that as we go through today. Um, But the following weekend is going to be a little bit different. November 20th, I'm really excited about, we're doing a testimony weekend. Okay, it's, uh, you guys like the Q&A so much at the end of Suit Up. Everybody had good things to say about it. So I wanted to do one of those for this series too, but a little bit different. Uh, There are so many amazing stories of what God has done in your lives. So we talked about sharing our testimonies, I think, was it week three of this series, two weeks ago. And so many of you have been writing your testimonies down. You've been sharing them too. And so I want you all to hear them. I don't want to be the only one hearing these amazing God stories, okay? So we're going to share some of them. I cannot wait for you to hear them. It's going to build your faith, but I am still collecting stories. I want you to know. Uh, I'm, I'm pretty sure I'm full. At least well, we could probably be here all day sharing stories, but I think I have enough to cover November 20th, but I would still love to hear your story. And we used to share a lot of these testimonies like after worship, Uh, We'd sprinkle them in throughout the month. I'd love to do that again. So if you're willing to share your testimony with me, you don't have to share it publicly. Maybe I would for you, or I could read it or something. I know this stage and the microphone and everything intimidates people. But if you're willing to share your testimony, this could be a story of healing, a story of salvation, a story of Holy Spirit baptism or deliverance. Something big like that God has done in your life. I would love to hear it. Go to the sermon notes today, fe.church slash sermon notes, or you can find them in your app, uh, and submit that for me. Just type it out. Type out what God has done in your life, and I would love to read it, maybe even have you as a backup for November 20th if we have enough time. Deal? Does that sound like fun? Sound good? I think it's going to build all of our faith. Like When we share testimonies together, the faith level just rises in a place. So I'm super excited about it. Anyway, let's get to today. Ready? All right. I want to continue our discussion about evangelism. We are so not done here. In fact, I think we could talk about it every week forever and never be done. But how we should be loving people is a subject that's close to my heart because I think we do it badly a lot. Christians do evangelism badly a lot. And Jesus was an absolute pro at loving people. And he just did it so well. He made disciples so quickly and easily. I'm just blown away 
every time I read the story that I'm going to read to you today, just at how quickly he did this, we all need to learn a thing or two from him, <laughs> for sure. So today I want to show you some very practical stages of faith that we all move through. Because if we don't understand them, it can be hard to help others to move through them or to even move through them ourselves. I think a lot of times we get stuck in one particular stage of faith and we don't quite know how to move forward. So <clears throat> I, want, I want to show you sort of how to mature in your faith. Yeah, there's a lot of people that will come to us in crisis like, why am I just blown over by this storm? Why, why am I, I see other people going through these big things, right? They see us walk through these crazy life circumstances and how do you not get so off track like I do? How do I become more mature in my faith? How do I withstand some of this stuff? This is how. This is some of the... So I want to show you some of the stages of faith today. We're going to throw them up on the screen. This is just very practical, but I want you to see how Jesus did this as we go through our story today. So I want you to know these stages first. Unbelievers, right? It's number one. People who do not yet believe in having a relationship with their creator God through the power of Jesus Christ. Pretty self-explanatory. Yeah? Believers is the first step of faith, right? Just barely believing, just convinced that Jesus was the Son of God and that he died on the cross for my sins. That is bare minimum, right? Jesus was a genius at moving people into this step, which I'm going to show you in a minute. Then we have disciples, okay? So there is a difference between just being a fan of Jesus, just believing in him as the Son of God, and being a disciple of Jesus Christ, right? This is people who have not only chosen to believe, but also to give their very life to Jesus, to actively follow in his footsteps. These are, are where some of the pieces of obedience start to come into line, where we're listening to the teaching of Jesus. We're following in the death of the rabbi, as a, a, it's a Jewish saying they used to say, so close to the rabbi that you get his dust on your feet. Hey, this is disciples. They're following him. They're understanding his teachings, starting to come into line with a lot of it. Lots of learning and growing and life change and adjusting your life to fit the model that Jesus laid out for us in this step, okay? But there's more, okay? Then there's servant leaders after that. And these are people who are testing out those skills a little bit. They're using their gifts and their talents to lead others, serve others, um, they could be giving around the church a little bit. They're, they're serving on serve teams, maybe. This is just how it practically looks today. Um, they're following along behind Jesus and also helping with the work of the ministry. Does that make sense? Then there's reproducers. All right, I think actually a lot of us get stuck in the servant leadership stage. We just show up and we serve. We move some chairs. We you know, greet at the doors, we do something around the church and we think this is it. There's another stage to it, and that is reproducing your faith. I usually call these disciple makers. You're no longer just a disciple, you're a disciple maker, making disciples of other people. It's You've gone through all the other stages and you've matured to the point that you can reproduce your faith in others and encourage them to move through the steps for themselves as well. I even think, you know, we can be Christians for 30, 40, 50 years. Like all our lives, we can be Christians and not move into this step. You know, I, I don't know a lot of people who have recently led somebody to Jesus themselves. It is an addicting experience to lead someone to Jesus. You cannot wait to do it again once you see somebody you know and love, somebody that you've poured into, somebody that you've talked through things late at night and answered all their questions, and, and when they finally give their life to Jesus, it is a magical experience. I mean, it's, a, it's literally a supernatural experience. It's beautiful and amazing and powerful. You want to do that again. And I know so many Christians who have never had that experience. And we're going to talk about today how to 
like Jesus, move people through those steps. And so Luke 5 is where we're going today. You can go ahead and open your Bibles there, or it will also be on the screen. We're going to see people, we're going to see Jesus move people through these steps, okay? Here he is in the beginning of his ministry, already tested, tempted, baptized publicly by John the Baptist, and and baptized in the Holy Spirit too. Remember when he was dunked by John the Baptist, the Holy Spirit came upon him with the dove and the fire. And right, so he's he was out in the desert to be tempted after that. He's ready for ministry. Okay. And he's now out and about in with the people in the public around the Sea of Galilee, ministering to people and performing miracles. And he comes across these guys in a boat. Okay, this is where we're going to pick up our story today. Just want you to see this picture of where Jesus is at in his ministry. So Luke 5, verse 1. One day as Jesus was preaching on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, great crowds pressed in on him to listen to the word of God. He noticed two empty boats at the water's edge, for the fishermen had left them and were washing their nets. Stepping into one of the boats, I love the audacity (laughs) Jesus has. He's just like, oh, this is mine now. Stepping into one of the boats, I mean, it literally is, right? He has the authority to do this. But Jesus asked Simon, its owner, to push it out into the water. So he sat in the boat and taught the crowds from there. Can you picture this scene a little bit? Now, this is Simon, who later becomes Simon Peter. We know he's a passionate guy, right? Uh, A little bit headstrong and impulsive. I love Peter. But here he is. First time meeting Jesus, this random dude walks up and asks for your boat, right? This is a cold call. This, <laughs> he, he might have heard of Jesus before, but this is the first time we see him meeting him. There's this whole crowd of people following around this dude on a beach, and this guy comes up to you and asks to use your boat, and you're like, yeah, okay, I guess. So he pushes this boat out into the water. In verse 4, it says, When he had finished speaking, so he's speaking for a while, he's teaching the crowds. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Now go out where it is deeper and let down your nets to catch some fish. I've been thinking about this particular verse all week, and it really doesn't have much to do with the message, but I can't let it go. I love that Jesus almost seems to repay Simon for his time spent in his boat. Isn't that just kind of beautiful? Jesus is a provider. And he he uses Simon's boat here, but he also repays him for his time. And I don't know, it's just a beautiful thing that I haven't quite fully figured out in my mind why it's sticking with me so much. But I love that about Jesus. And already, I mean, this is Simon's first encounter with Jesus. And already, verse 5, He calls him master. Master, Simon replied. You can see that Simon has already, just by hearing him teach, has moved into the belief stage. You don't call someone master without believing in them a bit. So he's heard him teach one time, and he's already moved into the from unbeliever to believer. See how quickly that happened? He went from being some random guy Jesus encountered on the beach to calling him master already. He already recognized the authority of Jesus just by listening to him for a little bit. We worked hard, master, we worked hard all night last night and didn't catch a thing. But if you say so, I'll let down the nets again. You can see his belief here very clearly, right? It's more than just calling him master. It's, it's but if you say so. And we, we oftentimes, as Christians, we want to deny reality and not speak bad things into existence. Uh, I don't see a biblical pattern of that. What I see is a, a biblical pattern of acknowledging reality, and yet, but if you say so, <laughs> right? I, I know that things are bad, but if you say so, Jesus, I'm in. Right? I, I know <clears throat> we didn't catch anything last night, but if you say so, I'll go out and try again. Absolutely. If you say so. 
I know the guy that can change reality as I know it. It's who he is. So if he says so, I'm in. You can see Simon moving into the belief stage very, very quickly. And so verse 6, at this time, their nets were so full of fish, they began to tear. A shout for help brought their partners in the other boat, and soon both boats were filled with fish. And on the verge of sinking, so full... They had more than enough because when Jesus provides, he provides with abundance, right? Abundance, more than enough. Verse 8, when Simon Peter realized what had happened, he fell to his knees before Jesus. See this next level even. But if you say so, and now he's falling to his knees before Jesus, but instead of gratitude, listen to what comes out of his mouth. Oh Lord, please leave me. I'm such a sinful man. Oh, Lord, please leave me. I'm such a sinful man. Like, Simon gets it here. He has a revelation of who this man is. I mean, he may have been a little bit on the fence before. He he may have barely believed, but all of a sudden here, it hits him. This is God. This isn't just a, a good teacher. This isn't a rabbi, somebody. This is Nobody but God could have done this. And his first reaction isn't gratitude. It's unworthiness. It's shame. Because when confronted with the most holy of holies, right? A good God, the good God. We don't measure up. We will never measure up. You can see that Simon actually gets the gospel here, or he's starting to grasp the beginning of it. This is actually an essential part of the gospel, that we recognize how good God is and how sinful we are. In order to come to the full knowledge of salvation, we have to confront that truth at some point. He is so good, and I am so not And for most of us, it it becomes a stumbling block, right? Some of us understand this response all too well. (laughs) We realize now who Jesus is, and instead of being grateful, we're ashamed. You don't know what I've done, Pastor. You you don't. You don't know me like that. (laughs) I understand that God is good, but I am. I'm not. Here, in realizing that he was in the presence of God, the God, the guy who can provide fish where there is no fish, the guy who speaks with authority, he doesn't want to be anywhere near that moment. He says, please leave me. I'm a sinful man. But the thing is, the the next part, the beauty of the gospel, is that God can work with a person like that. In fact, it's the only kind of person he can work with. The kind that realizes they're broken. The kind that's honest about their sinfulness. The person willing to say, I am a sinful person. I don't know if you can use me, God. Me, of all people, you you should leave me. I'm, I'm too sinful. But God can use that person. Some people come into church so ashamed, like thinking they're going to burst into flames as soon as they walk in the doors. I'm so sinful, Pastor. You don't know what I've done. But I may not know what you've done, but I know that his grace is sufficient. I know that because it's sufficient for me. The truth is, we will never measure up. I will never, ever measure up. I cannot do enough good things in my life to make up for the sin. It's not possible. He is too good I am too sinful for Jesus to love. But he does it anyway. But he does it anyway. It is a gift. His love, his forgiveness is a gift. It's not something I have earned or could ever earn. This is the gospel message. And look, I know that some of you sitting here in this room, you've heard this already. You know this already. This is why you came to Jesus. But I'm telling you again because this is how we should see the gospel. This is how we should understand the gospel. We, we should know it intimately and be able to tell anyone who asks or is willing to listen the beauty, 
the power, the amazingness of, of what the gospel message actually is. A lot of us want to skip over the part where we're sinful, right? We don't want to acknowledge that part. We don't want other people to have to acknowledge it. We don't want to have to tell somebody, you're sinful, you suck, dude. Like, that's not comfortable or fun, but it's true. We have to come to that knowledge to realize the rest of it. God is still God, and God is still good, and he loves you anyway. Amen? Verse 9. <clears throat> A little explanation of his, <laughs> I'm, I'm too sinful, leave me, right? For he was all struck by the number of fish they had caught, as were the others with him. His partners, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, were also amazed. But Jesus replied to Simon, don't be afraid. In response to being told that he was a sinful person, Jesus' response is, don't be afraid. He doesn't agree with him. He doesn't rub it in, tell him just how sinful he knows he already is. You don't deserve my presence type of thing. He says, don't be afraid. He pulls him closer. This is what Jesus does. He doesn't layer on guilt. He doesn't heap on condemnation. So why do we? Oftentimes as believers, we heap the condemnation on. We, many of us say that we share the gospel with our friends and neighbors, but what we're actually doing is trying to point out all of the things that they've done wrong. We want to wag our fingers at them a little bit. Well, you really should go to church, and you really should. And Jesus doesn't do that. I never see him doing that. He calls us to more. He doesn't leave us where we are. He calls us further, right? He reminds us who we actually are in his eyes is what he's actually doing. Reminding us that we are righteous, that we are good in his eyes, that, that we are worthy of his love. That's who he, even though it's, it's, we're sinful, that is the reality. He reminds us of who he sees us as. He called you because of his love for you, not because you're deserving of it. Don't be afraid, he says. From now on, you'll be fishing for people. He calls him to more. Not only do I love you, but I'm also calling you to something higher than this. Something bigger than this. Something that will not just matter for today and this time, but for eternity, forever. You're going to come and you're going to help me. You are capable of so much more. That's what he's saying to you today, too. You're capable of so much more. God is calling you to matter to something that matters for eternity. In verse 11, as soon as they landed, they left everything and followed Jesus. There's a couple of things that we can learn here about the process of moving through these stages of faith, some things that every single one of us sort of have to go through in order to move from stage to stage. And we say this occasionally around here. I don't think I say it enough, but really how I see the steps are finding Jesus, moving forward, and doing something with your faith. We have to find him first, right? We have to come to know him, to move from the belief, the unbelief stage to the belief stage. And listen, I know that in our culture and time period, it's a little harder to do this well, right? Most people already have a preconceived notion of who Jesus is in America today, right? We've been talking about going to the Congo on this missions trip uh, next year, June 2023. If anybody's interested, look at the events page. Every time we go on a mission trip overseas, especially like these third world, world countries and um, unreached people groups, we see these huge festivals, I mean, massive numbers. If you've ever seen a Mission SOS victory report, it's tens of thousands, sometimes hundreds of thousands of people attend these Jesus festivals around the world, in Africa, Africa mostly. Uh, but people always ask, like, why can't these things happen in America? Like, especially if you're there and you're experiencing it, you're like, let's take this home. Let's do this at home. Why can't we do this at home? Every time a church tries to throw a big festival, it's only Christians that show up <laughs> right here. Why? Now, I know it's tempting to think this way, but the culture that you're planted in matters a lot. 
When there is no exposure to the gospel, it's much easier to believe. In America, we sometimes have nothing but bad exposure to the gospel. We have Christians using and abusing people, churches that are, are toxic cultures, and they, they hurt people. And so it's bad exposure. What little exposure they have, they, they don't see as a good thing. It, this is why it was hard for Pharisees to come to Jesus. Like Jesus had portions of this culture in his culture as well. Uh, Pharisees, they were too entrenched in their ideas, their thoughts about who God was, that when the Messiah came, the, the person that they had all the prophecies, of over 400 prophecies, some of these Pharisees had memorized about the Messiah, and there he is in front of them, and they couldn't see him. It's tragic when you think about it. Jesus came for them first, and then for the world. And so all of that to say, a lot of us think that our friends who are far from Jesus, the ones living in total sin, and they couldn't be happier about it, right? They think they're the ones furthest from him. It's not always the case. In fact, they may just be the ones who are easiest to bring to him. Passionately one way, they're easy to flip to passionately for Jesus. When they have very little experience with church, sometimes it's easier to move into the belief stage. But we can see here how easily and quickly Jesus moved these early disciples through these stages, from unbeliever to believer, with just a few teachings and a small miracle. Now, I know no miracle, but you can't really call a miracle small to any degree. But, you know, on the scale of, like, Lazarus to finding fish, it's a small miracle. It wasn't just the miracle, though. I think we can learn a couple other things from what he does here and be better witnesses for Jesus by studying him a little bit, okay? So he allowed them to observe is the first thing he did. He allowed them to watch him before asking them to give up everything. Most of us don't, we don't allow people to observe our new lives after becoming Christians. Not nearly enough, anyway. Growing up, I don't know if you guys have this experience. Maybe it's just a pastor's kid thing. But I was in people's houses. Like, we were invited over for dinner a lot growing up. Anybody else? And, like, you had people in your house a lot for dinner. Like, families would come over. We, we always hosted, like, a home group and stuff growing up. We had, I felt like I was in people's homes and had people in our home way more often like in the 90s, than we do today. Is it just me? Or is that culture has changed, right? We don't have people over nearly as much anymore. And maybe it's, you know, my Netflix queue is always calling, or, you know, Chip and Joanna have made it seem like every home has to be a show home, or we're way too busy as a culture. I think that plays a part, too. Um, maybe it's just social media makes us feel like we're connecting with people. I don't know what it is, but I think our culture has changed here. Uh, we're not in each other's lives nearly like we used to be. The early church, they were in each other's homes daily. Daily. Uh, I think this is one of those things that should change when you become a believer, actually, but in most, most of our cases, it probably doesn't. I'm, I'm not sure it's true. We should be sharing our lives with each other. We should be inviting people over and, and being in each other's homes. You, there's a reason that church leaders should enjoy having people in their homes. Did you know that's an actual requirement of a church leader? 1 Timothy 3.2 says, you must exercise self-control, live wisely, have a good reputation, must enjoy having guests in his home, and must be able to teach literally a requirement. Why? Why would that be? Seems like such an odd thing for like a spiritual leader, but having guests in your home, and I have learned this, Aaron and I have probably led a home group for what, five years steadily now? <clears throat> you live different when you have people in your home regularly. You just do. Like we took a break from it for a while this year as we were going through sabbatical and stuff, and our house got messy, y'all like messier than, and dirtier than usual. Like you don't see things 
when you live in it and you don't clean for guests. Like, <laughs> it just does. You live different when there's people consistently in your house week after week. When you look at your home with the eyes of a visitor, you see it differently. You live differently. And when it's consistent, you're consistently living that way. I noticed that as soon as we picked up home group again, like, I'm keeping it cleaner on a regular basis so that we don't have to deep clean every, every Thursday, right? It's a different way of living. And it's not only physical things. It's also like you're not able to hide as much of who you are when there's people over a lot. Uh, it's, you're, they're in your space. They're in your business. You live different. You're more transparent, more open with the people who are in your home, and the people who are over feel like they know you more, I think, right? When you go over to somebody's house, you feel like you know them on a deeper level. It's like you, if you can picture where somebody lives, how they live, feel like you really know them as a person. It's much harder to conceal who you are, who you really are, when you're in someone's home. And why am I focusing on this so much Jesus let people observe him. The Son of Man may not have had a place to lay his head, but he, he didn't create this air of mystery about him. Don't get me wrong, there was definitely that. There was awe and wonder wherever he went because of the miracles that he did and the way that he spoke. But he was open and honest about who he was, and he let them in, invited them back with him. He... he <clears throat> He was in ministry mode for those three years, but he let people observe him. He let them get close. We talked about the, you know, sharing our testimonies and how powerful it is in evangelism a couple weeks ago, but our lives should be a testimony, right? The way that you treat your family, your spouse, your kids, the way that you take care of your home, the way that you manage your finances, your resources, even your time, they should all be testimonies. Let people in. Let them observe you. Show them Jesus by the way you live, not just what comes out of your mouth. And how are you going to do that if you don't ask them to come into your life a little, right? Or even more surface level than this. Some of us go to work Monday morning and, you know, the small talk, hey, what did you do this weekend? We skip right over the church part. God may have done something earth-shattering in your life on a Sunday morning, changed everything about your perspective and the way you see humanity in general, but because that person isn't a believer, you're like, yeah, I did some errands and took the kids to the pumpkin patch. No church mentioned, right? Let them observe. You don't have to force it on them. In fact, you shouldn't be forcing or coercing anyone's belief ever, right? But Jesus didn't do that. He let people observe first. He allowed them to watch. I always remember what he said to the woman at the well. If you only knew the gift God has for you. Right? Let them see a glimpse of it. If you only knew what God has for you. It's like we demand people give up everything they've built their lives around without first stopping to see the goodness of being a Jesus follower. We don't show them nearly enough. We tell them that they have to stop everything they're doing um, without showing anything good that will replace it. We want to guilt them into believing in Jesus, forgetting that guilt pulls people away from God, not towards. The Holy Spirit, it's his job actually to convict the world, right? It's not ours. It's his. We don't need to convict them. We need to love them and show them the goodness of God. Our lives should show them the goodness of God. Let them see the changes in your life. Let them observe. The second thing Jesus did here is he met a need before asking them to give up everything. And I mean, he literally said, leave everything and come follow me, right? And that's what they did. Before asking them to give up everything, he met their need. I think he was sort of showing them here that he would take care of them. He could provide them with that much fish by just saying a few words. So, of course, he's going to be a good rabbi, a good master, someone to follow and serve, right? 
He met their need. He is the provider. He is the problem solver. It's who he is. And it's not that the church today should be looked at as something to take from, because it's more like something to give your life to, your life to. But we do take care of each other. It is part of what the church does. I mean, that's something that happened since the Acts 2 church. When it was being set up, they took care of each other. They, they actually organized ministries around taking care of each other. It's what they did. Maybe this is just because it, it's fresh in my mind, but I, I have been in ministry 14 years now, and I can tell you the level of care from the community for someone who is in full-time ministry is absolutely mind-blowing sometimes. I, I have never wanted for baby supplies for my children. And I might get emotional, but <laughs> this is fresh. I, I've never wanted for clothes. I've never wanted for meals when I'm sick. Not since being in ministry. Not since this level of involvement in the church. I was a kid's pastor when I was pregnant with my other two, but we were so taken care of. When you take care of people spiritually, they take care of you physically. Sometimes people will give us food or like, you know, pastor gifts at Christmas. Um, some of you give us bologna every year from your hunting trips or like Christmas cookies or whatever. It's a way that you honor your pastor. It is so dear to me because I grew up with that as well. as a pastor's kid. Uh, you know the little, the popcorn tins? <laughs> or like the fruit in neat little boxes, the pears or whatever. I don't even know where they come from. In my head, they're just pastor gifts because that's what we received at Christmas every year. I associate them with, with being a pastor, with serving the church. People have always taken care of us. But sometimes my kids will like, why are people giving us gifts? Like it's not your birthday. It's not Christmas yet. What? Why, why are we coming home from church with all these gifts? And I get to explain to them that the church is this beautiful thing when it's healthy. And people take care of each other, and there's generous, good people out there who just want to bless the person that gives into them spiritually. It's, it's a beautiful, amazing thing when the body of Christ takes care of each other. I This is one of my like favorite projects, too, is when... You know, during COVID, I set up this quarantine team. Some of you are on it. Uh, it was my favorite thing when somebody texted me, hey, can you pray? You know, we're sick, we're quarantining or whatever. And I would say, do you need meals? Do you need groceries? And I'd text three people and they would have them by the end of the day. Like, <laughs> or we'd set up meals for the week and I got to see people care for people. Or sometimes a, a financial need will come to me and I text a few people for prayer and it's covered. Like, we take care of each other. It's amazing how people respond, especially when they've been taken care of spiritually by someone. That's what the church does. We should be taking care of others. Jesus took care of people. I'm living proof that the church takes care of each other when it's healthy. It's an overflow of the very heart of Jesus. He took care of people. He's a provider. So much so that the boats almost sank, guys. It's overflow. It's abundance. That's who he is because that's who the Father is. We should be taking care of others too. There's this lyric. I can't think of what song. Is it a Hillsong song that says, break our hearts for what breaks yours? That prayer has always got me because... <laughs> I think God's heart breaks for very different things than ours does. What makes Jesus angry, or we only get a few examples of this in the Gospels, but what made him angry was nothing like what would make us angry. And what makes us angry, he didn't seem to mind all that much. The betrayal, the abuse. <laughs> I mean, he endured all of that without any complaints. What he got angry at was fruitlessness. He got angry at religious abuse. His heart broke. He was moved with compassion for people often. He healed people because he was moved with compassion for them. He provided for them. Right? This is 
our prayer should be, God, break my heart for what breaks yours. Let me care about the things that you care about, the people that you care about. We should be providing for needs. This shouldn't only be within the church, but an overflow onto the world around us as well. Feed the hungry. Take a meal to someone who is sick. This, this one requires knowing something about people's lives. Like knowing them well enough to serve them. Actually listen to people. How many times do you say, hey, how are you doing today? And then keep walking? You don't actually stop and listen, right? You expect a good, how are you? And that's it. Maybe actually ask. No, really, how are you doing? How are the kids? What's going on in your life? right? Get to know people. Most of us are too busy. It's like the Good Samaritan story. Two good guys, I mean, religious dudes, priests, pastors, they went right by the guy in need, the guy in the ditch, broken. It was the Samaritan who nobody expected to be actually like Jesus that stopped, took care of him, put him in the equivalent of a hospital on his own dime, right? He took care of the guy. Jesus said, which one is more like me? The one hurrying off to a religious event? Or the unworthy one who takes the time to help someone on the side of the road? But throughout Jesus' ministry, we see him have this access to people. Access to people that the Pharisees didn't have and didn't want, by the way, Access to people who would never have darkened the doors of a, a church, a temple, a tabernacle. Jesus met them where they were, fed them, healed them. He was moved with compassion for them. He met a need, right? Third thing that he does here, I think why he moved them so quickly into believer is he came into their life first before asking them to leave theirs. Right? He came into their life first before he said, come and follow me. The, the Pharisees didn't have access to the people that Jesus did because their reputation was more important to them than people. They couldn't be seen with those kind of people. Right? Jesus, you all know the Zacchaeus story? Zacchaeus was a wee little man. A wee little man was he... <laughs> He was up in a tree looking at Jesus. He was a tax collector, a sinner, somebody no Pharisee would have been seen dead talking to. Jesus invited him down and said, let's go to your house for dinner. It was his suggestion to go to his house for dinner. The Pharisees criticized this exact thing over and over and over is how dare a religious man do that? Jesus showed up at parties of sinners. <laughs> he loved people right where they were. He didn't go for the party, by the way. He went for the people. He loved people. There is a huge church down south called Life Church. Their motto is anything short of sin. They will do anything short of sin to reach one. Meaning anything. <laughs> They'll do anything. It's not sin, obviously, but they will go and meet people where they are for just one more to know Jesus. Anything short of sin. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. To seek and to save them. Sometimes to do that, you have to do a little seeking. Right? We expect them to come to us all the time. They don't always. Jesus didn't find his disciples in a temple. Did he find any of his disciples in a temple? I don't think so. He went into their lives. Pharisees wouldn't do that because they were afraid some of the evil would rub off on them. Right? Some of the, the sin might rub off, or worse, someone religious might see them, and then it's their reputation on the line. That was everything to a Pharisee, teachers of religious law. Their reputation was everything. Jesus didn't regard it like that. <laughs> he could have been king. He could have been the leader of every, I mean, every political party. Every, he could have been the leader of everything. 
he chose to lay down his reputation, to lay down his very life. And he said he came into their lives first. We see this in Christianity a lot, people caring way more about their reputation than people. It's not how I see Jesus. And Paul talked about being all things to all people. Right? He was talking about giving up some of the freedoms that come with Christianity versus Judaism to win all people. He talked about living life like a Jew when he was with the Jews and, and living like the Gentiles when he was with them in order to win them all. He wasn't talking about sinning. He was talking about giving up some of the freedoms that come with following Jesus, loving them right where they were, going into their lives. That's what Jesus did before he said, come, follow me. The fourth thing that I see him do here, not only did he let them observe, he, he met a need, he came into their life, but he also challenged them to be a part of something bigger than themselves. We often downplay Christianity when we're promoting it. I find myself doing this a lot. Like, it's so easy to come to Jesus. It's so easy to know your creator, God. It's so easy. And it is. Jesus made it easy but life isn't always easier with Jesus, <laughs> right? In fact, I think that's something new Christians have to, it's a realization they sort of have to come to to move through maturity because it looks really good and easy and it's fun and it feels so good at first, but it's not always easier with God. God is not this fairy godmother following you around, granting you three wishes all the time. He is with you. <laughs> Absolutely, he, he helps you through issues and gives you the wisdom, and he doesn't always deliver you immediately. He doesn't always perform a miracle in your life just because you demand it. Sometimes he allows you to walk through some things for the breakthrough that may come on the other side. Like the growing that comes with, how's this saying go? Aaron Holt says it all the time. There's no growth in the comfort zone. There's no comfort in the growth zone. Right? Jesus challenges us to something bigger. There have been so many times in my life where Jesus, I, I felt like I finally conquered something. Like I was good at kids' ministry. I was good at it for a while. And then God's like, okay, you're not done yet. Go do something else scary. And he started calling me to preach. And I said, no, not doing that. We're not doing that. <laughs> Right? But he kept challenging me to bigger and bigger things. When he finds somebody willing, he will continue to challenge you. And right when you get your feet under you, he'll ask you to do more. It's not always easier. He didn't challenge them to leave everything behind, though. I mean, he, he said, leave your career behind, maybe, but not the skills that they had developed in that career. Did you notice that? He said, come be fishers of men, be fishers of people. Use the skills that you've built in your life and use them for Jesus, right? When he's talking to fishermen, he uses fishing metaphors. We see Jesus when he's talking to farmers, he uses a lot of farming <laughs> metaphors, right? When he's talking to religious people, he talks about being a kingdom of priests. He speaks their language. Jesus, this is interesting. He was raised a carpenter, right? Do we see one parable about carpentry? You'd think you would hear some. That's what he knew. That's what he grew up doing. But I can't find one. <laughs> it wasn't a carpenters he was speaking to. He didn't ask people to get on his level. He spoke their language a little bit. I learned a little about fishing when I was going through this. Uh, you know, anybody fish, fishermen? You guys fish in here? Anybody? I see like three hands. Okay, there's a couple. So you guys probably know more about this than I do. I've only fished one time in my life and I was like 12 years old. I caught something, by the way, I'm proud of. But then they skinned it and cleaned it in front of me and I like didn't eat fish for 10 years. Uh, so I learned a thing or two then as well. But things like, you know, different kind of fish take different kinds of lure, right? 
um, you have to know a little about the fish before you go out and prepare and gather the tools and the supplies and the lures and whatever. Um, just a couple of weird details I learned. Saltwater fish love shrimp, dead or alive, which is gross. Trout will bite kernel corn and cheese. Catfish will eat pieces of ivory soap. I thought that was weird. But like, depending on what you're going after, what kind of fish you're looking for, you have to bring a different kind of lure, right? I believe Jesus knew this about fishing for people as well. And he was calling them to come and leave everything, but he wasn't saying, leave your skills behind. In fact, I need those. We need those. We're fishing for people now, and sometimes you have to bring different lure for different people. Right? You have to get to know your fish in order to provide the right kind of lure. Fishing takes patience. It takes patience in knowing something about the fish. And then after catching, you still have to prepare them, I learned as a little 12-year-old. Right? You have to make them ready <laughs> to be productive. You have to take care to prepare it, which actually brings me to the second. This has all been like one, find Jesus, A, B, C, D, right? Number two is we also have to move forward. So moving into, this is how I believe Jesus moved people through those steps. But he doesn't leave us there, right? They didn't just move from unbelievers to believers that day. He also had to move them into being disciples. That was a process that took three years. They followed Jesus for three years, but Jesus, the important thing to, to recognize here with the move forward piece is Jesus doesn't call us and leave us. He calls us and then prepares us, right? He, he qualifies us as we go. It's, it's on the job training when it's Jesus, okay? He doesn't let them stay where they are. He calls them and then he helps them move forward. They followed him for three years. They listened to every teaching. They saw him withdraw in prayer constantly. They saw him speak with authority like he knew the truth, not just other people's teachings. Right? They saw him challenge them over and over again. They, they were challenged up to obedience. They saw him do countercultural things in the name of love, like the Zacchaeus story. <laughs> they saw him over and over do these crazy, they must have seemed so crazy in the moment, countercultural things. They learned from him. They saw him walk in obedience even when it was hard. I mean, the, think about what the disciples saw him. There were death traps, so many of them. There were um, or death threats, then there were traps. The Pharisees were always trying to trap him in something. There were lies about him. And they saw him walk through all of this with such grace. There's so many of us, we want to play Christian, but we don't open our Bibles. How can we be learning from Jesus when we're not learning from Jesus. We're not reading about him. We're not studying his life and how he behaved through all of this. Or we read a couple of verses on our Bible app, like the verse of the day, and we move on. We're not learning and growing. I'm a firm believer that you can't know what God would say if you don't know what he has said. We have the word. We're so lucky to have the word. <laughs> We get it all in black and white. It's never been easier in history to find out answers about the Word of God. You have to read it to have questions. Right? I know people who aren't great leaders. Okay, listen. It'll, your smartphone will read the Bible to you. Never been easier. Right? I know people who are just plain new to this and they don't understand it all, but they aren't afraid to admit it and dive in with both feet anyway. And sometimes people text me questions weekly or daily until they start to get the hang of the Bible. I love it. Because I get it. It's a complicated book. Right? It's 66 books, actually, written by around 40 authors over thousands of years. There are books of prophets and books of um, the law and 
books of prophecy, and then there's four gospels, and they all kind of say the same thing, but don't. What's up with that? And <laughs> there are books that should be taken literally, and some books that should be allegorical. Like, how do I make sense of this? I get it. But you have to start somewhere. I always suggest starting in the book of John because it flows right into the book of Acts in the early church, but you're learning about Jesus. You're studying who he was. Do you see why we can't just proclaim Jesus without being willing to help people along it? Like the truth isn't just lying around on the surface for anyone to be able to scoop up. Sometimes you have to go after it. Discipleship is best done in the context of relationship. Like we can go out on the streets and proclaim Jesus, and that's good when we see people come to know Jesus because of it, but it's best in the context of relationship because from the very few pages, first few pages of scripture, God set us up in the context of relationship. And he wants us to know him, have a relationship with him, to follow people along and help them grow and learn. If, if you came to church alone, we have home groups for that, right? If you came to church ignorant, we have growth groups for that. If you came to church broken, we have disciple makers for that. We should be bringing people along in life with us. We need more disciple makers. We need more fishers of men. All right, next week, we only got through finding Jesus and move forward today, right? Next week, we're going to talk about what it takes to move on to the next phase of discipleship, which is doing something for Jesus, to mature into the phase of, of servant leadership and being a reproducer of your faith. We saw the disciples move from unbelievers to believers today, and then very quickly to disciples in this passage, but they learned servant leadership over the next three years, and they learned how to be reproducers after the Holy Spirit came on the day of Pentecost after Jesus ascended back into heaven. It took the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and it took the Holy Spirit. This is where a lot of us get stuck. As someone helped us believe, someone helped us become disciples, we, we follow Jesus around. We generally like some of the things that he says. We enjoy his teaching. We've even changed a little bit. But we're still not leading anyone else to Christ. We're still not baptized in the Holy Spirit. Next week, we are taking a deep dive into the helper, the Holy Spirit. If, if you haven't been baptized in the Holy Spirit yet, I mean, there's always the opportunity here around the altars, but next week is your opportunity. I, I want you to come prepared, though. Having done your research, right, reading through the scriptures, I have in the sermon notes today, I have a whole extra section on the Holy Spirit. If this is something you've been praying about for a while, go look at those notes this week. Make that your, your time with Jesus this week. Right? That's your assignment. Come ready, ready to receive, having read through all of the scriptures in those notes. Because when the Holy Spirit comes, he brings power, love, and a sound mind. He equips you for ministry. He gives you power to be his witnesses power to love people fiercely like Jesus did. I want each and every one of you to experience that. And we were never meant to do this alone, to do it in our own strength. Jesus sent a helper. All right, and for those of you who are baptized in the Holy Spirit already, I want you praying this week. Will you do that with me? Pray in tongues. Pray that God will baptize Freedom Valley like never before, that we'll all leave fired up next week, and we'll go into all the world to preach the gospel. Will you do that with me? Let's pray. Father, today, thank you for calling us. Thank you that even in our shame, in our weaknesses, you are seeking us, that you want us on your team, that you've called us to so much more, even when we're selfish and broken. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you for giving us the message 
of Jesus Christ, that he came to seek and save the lost and to call us into being fishers of men. Father, I pray that you would anoint and call more people in Freedom Valley than ever. That we would truly have a heart for yours. That we would be able to pray the very bold and dangerous prayer of break my heart for what breaks yours. That our lives, our very lives would be a testimony to what you can do and what you're capable of. Next week, Father, baptize us in the Holy Spirit. Send the helper. Give us power, love, and a sound mind to go into all the world and be your witnesses, to have a, a passion and a fire burning deep within us. Heads bowed and eyes closed today. But maybe you've never given your life to Jesus. You've never moved from unbelief to belief. Today you want to do that. Or, or maybe you've believed, you're here today. I mean, you believe enough to say, you know, I'm a Christian maybe, but you've never moved into the discipleship. I want to follow Jesus. I want to give my life to him. I want to offer you both of those opportunities to, today. And we say around here, I'm in. I'm into following Jesus. I'm into being a disciple of his, to learning about him, to growing with him, giving my very life to him. Today is your opportunity to do that if you've never done that before. You say, I'm in. Call on the name of Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Ask him for forgiveness for all the selfishness and the sin in your life. Yes, we know you're not worthy. No, none of us is worthy. Not one. But Jesus loves you anyway. It's a gift from heaven. If that's you today and you're in this room, you want to say, I'm in, I'm into following Jesus. Maybe it's the first time or the, or the first time in a long time. Would you just raise your hand right where you are? I'm in to following Jesus. Thank you. Keep those raised for just a moment. Anyone else? I'm in. I want to follow Jesus. I want to give my life to him. If you're watching on live, you, online, online, you can text I'm in to the number on the screen or you can type in the comments I'm in. I would love to help you with that decision as well. Keep those hands raised if you're in the room for just a moment until the ushers give you just a little card. It's just helpful to know where to go next. Amen. Praise God. You can put those down. If you're in the room today, though, and you're, you want more, maybe you're a disciple. You, you, again, you've been bringing some things in your life into obedience. You, you've been following a while, but you know that there's more. There's more God's calling you to, and you haven't moved into it yet. Would you just raise your hand? I just, I would like to pray for you this week. We are, we are boldly praying for the Holy Spirit baptism next week. And I just want to pray over you as we go through this week and you prepare. Father, thank you so much for those in this room that have been so bold, that have been uh, realizing their need for more today. God, I pray that you would just prepare their hearts this week. As they go through this week, you would put a fire within them for more, that you would Bring out the, the gifts and the talents and the callings you've placed within them. They're, they're so unique to each one of us. God, I just pray that you would bring those out stronger than ever. That we would all be people with a, a burning passion for you and for others. We would want to show that to the world. That we would truly be able to go into all the world, all of our world, and be your witnesses. Give us that boldness, that passion. In Jesus' name, help us be fishers of men. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Pastor Kansas. Give her a round of applause, some love. I don't know about you, when growing up, when somebody talked about evangelism, I always thought preaching at somebody, standing at a street corner, handing out tracts. But this sermon this morning, what was it? Helping people in your circle find Jesus simple as that. Helping people in your circle find 
Jesus. Andrew Murray, great preacher, UK, South Africa, turn of the 19th, 20th century, said this. There's two types of Christians. Soul winners and backsliders. <laughs> Which one are you? When I heard that, that was a challenge. Which one am I? Which one am I? All right, would you stand with me? Just a reminder that next week, Thanksgiving, Friendsgiving, please sign up if you haven't, bring food. 20-second takeaway. Chris, we good for that if you have something you want to share. And I want to pray this scripture over you. It's from Philippians chapter 1. And we use scripture to speak into our lives, and it's this. Every time I think of you, I give thanks to my God. Whenever I pray, I make my requests for all of you with joy. For you have been my partners in spreading the good news about Christ from, time, from the time you first heard of it until now. And I am certain that the God who began the good work within you will continue his work until it is finally finished on the day when Christ Jesus returns. God knows how much I love you and long for you with the tender compassion of Jesus Christ. I pray that your love will overflow more and more and that you will keep on growing in knowledge and understanding. For I want you to understand what really matters so that you may live pure and blameless lives until the day of Christ's return. May you always be filled with the fruit of your salvation, the, righteousness, the righteous character produced in your life by Jesus Christ. For this will bring much joy and glory and praise to God. Amen. Amen. We love you. Thanks for worshiping with us this week. Go and share the gospel, and we'll see you next week. Thank you so much for joining us today. If you made a decision to follow Jesus, please let us know by going to fv.church slash I am in. And remember to download our app for more content and helpful links. 